morning and to uh, have some folks visiting with us. We're very glad you're all here. Pray that you'll be blessed. Now, we are in a verse-by-verse exposition of John's Gospel. We've been here for quite a long time already, and it'll be quite a while yet before we're finished with uh, with this book. We've been looking at the, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the Last Supper, the the time when Jesus gathered his disciples together for that last Passover meal. <clears throat> it was at this time that Jesus, that Luke tells us that Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired <clears throat> to eat this Passover with you. The earnestness of his desire was that he should impart to them the truth of who he was. Revealing to them the final fulfillment of all that the Father had planned for the Son in eternity past. The Lord had revealed that one of them would betray Him. The disciples had no idea who that would be. But by saying this, Jesus would reveal a couple of different things. First, he would reveal that the deed that was coming would not take him by surprise. He was not surprised at all. In fact, Jesus had already warned his disciples early on that he would be betrayed and handed over to the hands of sinful men. Second, it would show that even though he was aware that he was aware ahead of time and that the doer of the deed was still fully responsible for his actions now if we looked at all of the accounts of the last supper which are found in all four gospels We would see the prediction of the betrayer shows that John, in particular, never never forgot the revelation of what had taken place that night. And so years later, the Apostle John, writing his gospel, brings those things back to mind through through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give to us the accurate record of what took place on that evening. The sound of Jesus' voice is still ringing in John's ears when he said, One of you will betray me. Now, I want you to look at the, notice the word looked in verse 22. The disciples looked at one another. This wasn't a casual glance at each other. This was an intent look that kept on for quite some time. I can only imagine the discomfort that they would have felt at this time of the supper. The disciples kept on looking at each other. They're confused and they are deadly fearful 
Maybe they were, they were dis- certainly distressed over the announcement that Jesus had made and began to ask each other and ask the Lord, who is it afraid that their own names might be called? Three things are certain in the hearts of the disciples as, they, as they're sitting there or lying there, reclined at the table. One, they had not consciously betrayed him, though at times they didn't understand what he was saying, but they had never consciously thought of betraying him. Second, they did not, had not realized his earlier indications of a betrayal. It was, like the, it was like when he said, I'm going to be betrayed, it sort of went over their heads. They, they didn't understand who or how that would take place. <clears throat> and third, they would not at this point know that the Old Testament prophecies referred to their Lord until the fullness of the Spirit had come upon them and they would see it all clearly. Now, when we look at this passage, we find that there are two main characters besides Jesus. There are two main characters that are found in this text. And those two characters are John and Judas. They are pictured in comparison with one another at, the, at this last part of the supper. The Jews and the Romans had adopted the custom of reclining at meals, which they, <clears throat> which they got from the Persians and the Greeks. And so they would enter the room, there would be a, a table shaped in, like a U, and in the, middle of, in the middle of that U shape there would be another table. <clears throat> and on that table the servers would come in and they would place the food in front of the people who were going to eat. So Jesus reclined at the head of the table with enough room on either side of him for there to be one on his right and one on his left. Normally they would have uh, pillows stretched out where they could lean on their left they would lean on their left arm and prop their, themselves up with their left arm and then they would eat with their right hand. Sounds kind of uncomfortable, doesn't it? So these, all of these Renaissance pictures or paintings you see of the Last Supper are not very realistic as far as the way it was actually done. So the disciples are all spread out around this U-shaped table. It appears that John was reclined at Jesus' right hand. And it also appears that Judas was on his left. This is really an appropriate picture that illustrates what's going to take place at the last judgment that Matthew speaks of in chapter 25 of his gospel, where the king will say to those on his left, Depart from me. I never knew you. And those on his right, he will say, enter into the 
kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter the joy of your Lord. And so we have this, this picture of those on his right being accepted into his kingdom and his joy. And those on his left are cast into hell and away from his presence. I want you to notice in uh, verse 23 that John uses a designation of himself when he calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Now, that is a designation that John uses several times in this gospel. He uses it in chapter 13, verse 23, in chapter 19, chapter 20, and chapter 21, twice. The disciple that Jesus loved. This is not meant to cast aversions on the other disciples or any kind of... uh, putting down of the other disciples that John was the favorite of the group because Jesus loved all his disciples equally. This is simply saying it serves as a qualified truth that John knew in his heart about his own continuing relationship, love relationship with Jesus. John knew that he loved Jesus, and he knew that Jesus loved him. That's why he makes this statement. Mark um, tells us that uh, he was very close to him. When he said this, Mark records that they began to be grieved and to say to him, Surely it's not I. Matthew, uh, Matthew says that uh, even Judas said, surely not I, Rabbi. And so maintaining a level of deceit and hypocrisy that only Jesus knew existed. The other disciples did not know it existed. Now, we said last week that this proves that there can be and there is such a thing as false disciples. People who call themselves disciples of Christ, call themselves Christians, claim to know Christ in the forgiveness of sins, but are false in their hearts. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us, That we must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith or not. And I think a lot of Christians struggle with this in the sense that they wonder, am I truly a Christian? Am I truly, do I truly belong to Christ? And so I would ask the question to you this morning. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the criteria. That's what tells you whether or not that you are truly a follower of Christ, a lover of Jesus Christ. Do you love Christ? Certainly, we would 
not say that we love Him as much as we possibly could love Him. But do we love Him at all? See, unbelievers don't care about Christ. Unbelievers don't love Christ. Only His true believers truly love Him. And John knew that he loved Jesus and that Jesus loved him. Luke adds, they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. In Luke chapter 22. So, since John was so close to Jesus, that is in proximity, lying there, reclining there next to him, Peter, who must have been either across or down the table, motioned to John to lean over, which would have been, Jesus would have been on John's left. John would have had to have leaned over to where he could have seen Jesus, or maybe this way, and whisper, Lord, who is it? The others did not probably even hear that. But Peter had notion. Ask him who it is. Sounds just like Peter, doesn't it? <clears throat> Take a look at these two disciples. They are in such an opposite position to one another. John, who loves Jesus and proves his fidelity to Christ by asking who it was, and Judas, who was trying to cover up his treachery, by asking the same questions, yet knowing in his heart that he wanted to betray him. See, it's all a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's not what we say or do on the outside. It's what's in, it's what's in here. This is a common ploy that unbelievers, deceivers, and hypocrites use. They ask the questions and make the same statements to hide the truth that's in their hearts. All the others were saying, Lord, not I. And Judas pipes up and says, oh, Lord, surely it's not I. And yet at the same time, he knew it was him. But there's no hiding anything from Jesus. He knows. He knew all along. He knows every heart. He can discern the very thoughts and intents of all men. He can discern the thoughts and intents of us here this morning. Finally, Jesus tells John that it is the one to whom he shares the bread after dipping it in the sauce. Now, the bread would have been unleavened bread, a flat, sort of a flat loaf. And they would take and they would tear off pieces of it and they would dip it in the sauce. And that sauce, during a Passover meal, was uh, a sauce that was, uh, that was made of uh, a mixture of herbs and vinegar, water, salt, crushed dates and figs, and uh, raisins. It was normally considered an honor for a host of a meal to dip bread in the sauce and then hand it to someone. 
That was, the, that was a, a symbol of honor to that individual. This is just like Jesus. To show honor and kindness to the one who would ultimately send him to the cross. But kindness is in God's character. And he shows it to his enemies so that they might repent of their crimes and their sins against him and be saved. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Think of how long God, God waited patiently for you to repent of your sins when you saw the kindness of giving his son in your place. Do you presume on that, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But Judas, even though he was given every opportunity, refused to see God's kindness in that way and hardened his heart against Jesus and took the bread. Judas is now singled out. In this passage, as the son of Simon Iscariot. The reason he's singled out that way is because there was another Judas among the disciples. We see that in John chapter 14 coming up. Now, backing up just a bit, it would seem... That Jesus had already broken off a piece of bread and was holding it in his hand, ready to dip it, even before John asked him who it was that was going to betray him. We can imagine that after giving the bread to Judas, John now knows who the imposter is. I can almost see him. I can almost see Peter Intently watching as John goes, Judas. And then Jesus gives the bread to Judas. It is still possible at this point that the other disciples did not know yet that it was Judas. From a, far, from a distance of the table, they might have thought, oh, look how Jesus is honoring Judas. But word would soon spread. And they would all know that it was Judas that he was talking about. Now notice after Judas had taken the piece of bread, that the scripture says Satan entered into him. I've always been a bit fascinated by this phrase. For there is only one other person named in Scripture that says that Satan entered into them. And that person 
is known as the Antichrist that will appear in the last days and will work signs and wonders by the power of Satan. He will be possessed by Satan. Judas at this point is being possessed by Satan himself. This is not just a mere demon possession. This is a satanic possession by Satan. It is not that he, Satan just <clears throat> suggests to Judas's mind to do this thing. He had already done that back in chapter 13, verse 2, where it says he had already put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. John uses very specific language here that Satan actually entered into Judas' body and possessed him. We might say that Satan inhabited Judas' Judas' soul. Now the name Satan means adversary, and he is the ancient enemy that appeared just after the creation, at some point after the creation, very close after. He is also known as the angel who opposed God, named Lucifer, who opposed God and said he would become greater than God and overthrow God's rule over the universe. <clears throat> you can find that in Isaiah chapter 14. Now, Satan is in control of Judas's heart and mind. Now, that had happened once before. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Let's look at it. This happened to Judas in chapter 22 of Luke's gospel. Excuse me. Beginning at verse 3. Notice what it says. They are at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's drawing near. Passover hasn't come just yet. So Satan, Satan had, this is a different place where Satan's entered into Judas. So the chief priests and scribes were looking in a way to put him to death, but they feared the people. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officials how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. <clears throat> Now, in this passage, the Passover had not yet arrived in Luke 22. And so now he is being possessed again during the supper to carry out the act of treason. Now, at the Last Supper, for Judas, the day of salvation has ended. 
He has crossed the line. And Jesus will no longer offer to him the gospel as he has previous to this. The sentence of hell has arrived for Judas. All the divine mercy and grace he refused sealed Judas' eternal doom. F.F. Bruce writes in his commentary on John, Jesus' actions in singling Judas out for a mark of special favor may have been intended as a final appeal to Judas. If Judas wavered for a second, it was only to steel himself to carry out his fatal resolution to become the willing instrument of Satan. Satan could not have entered into him had he not granted admission. But when a disciple's will turns traitor, when the spiritual aid of Christ is refused, that person's condition is desperate indeed. Jesus simply says to to Judas, what you do, do quickly. This is the dismissal of Judas from the supper and from the other disciples. Having received the dipped bread, Judas got up from the table and left the room. This was the opportune time spoken of in Mark chapter 14, verse 11. Luke 22, verse 6 says the opportune time to arrest Jesus needed to be away from a crowd. Judas also knew that it was Jesus' custom after this meal to go to the Mount of Olives. We find in that in Luke 22, verse 39. So I ask myself the question, why the rush? Why, why the hurry? What you do, what you're going to do, do quickly. Why, why would Jesus say that to him? Well, I think there were several reasons why Jesus would say that. Why it was important for Judas to make haste in what he was going to do. First, it was to show that Jesus was in control of every facet of his death. He knew everything that was going to happen to him. He knew that the timing of it had to be right. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I've received this from my Father. So Jesus was totally in charge of everything that was going to happen in his death. Second, Jesus knew that this was the institution of the Lord's Supper that he had earnestly desired to bring to his disciples. We call it communion. Hopefully they had more in their uh, store than we did this morning. But it's communion. He did not want this Lord's Supper institution to be marred by one who was sold out by Satan. Sold out to Satan. This is why it's important that unbelievers don't come and take this. 
Because what you're doing when you, an unbeliever comes and partakes of this, and believe me, they do it all over. They are simply condemning themselves. Because a person who hasn't been forgiven of their sins, a person who's not a follower of Christ, a person who doesn't love Christ and does this, is a liar. very important. Another reason for the haste was because Jesus, being the Passover lamb, had to be sacrificed during the Passover at the appropriate time. Had to be precise. Now that Judas was gone, Jesus could speak openly with his disciples. And Jesus' final words of command and instruction were for only those who were truly his. The Bible doesn't mean anything to unbelievers. In fact, they don't, you generally don't want anything to do with it. They don't believe it's true anyway. It's just a bunch of men who put down stuff and, and uh, you know, dreamed up stuff to them. I hear it all the time. They certainly, the words of Christ would certainly not have applied to Judas the words he spoke after Judas was gone. <clears throat> the evening just before his departure from this, from this world gave the Lord an, an opportunity to impart to his disciples the things that would be vital to them as followers of Christ. Jesus could have been preoccupied with his own sufferings at this point. But he was not. It's not until he actually goes to the garden to pray that we see any suffering of his own accord. Finally, we can see that there are times when it is better to remove a scoffer than to allow them to stay. <clears throat> this is sometimes true in church life as well as it was at this time, sometimes people just need to be called on the carpet and removed if necessary. The other disciples did not know why Judas got up and left the room according to verses 28 and 29. They did not know why he was leaving. Judas still had the money bag. And this could have been the reason they thought these things. He's had the money bag. They could have seen him with it. Judas was the one that bought provisions and so on. Now, as we think of all that Judas was involved in, we tend to think that he is the, he is the extreme or ultimate example of a sinner who rejects Christ. I mean, after all, how many people have you ever met named Judas? I can't think of a single one that I've ever met who was named Judas. Maybe someone who named their dog Judas or Nero or some infamous person. Judas is seen as the betrayer, as the traitor. 
We should not think of him as the ultimate example of a sinner who rejects Christ. Because any sinner who rejects Christ is just as guilty as Judas. Those who reject Christ, like Judas did, are the example of those who dwell in darkness. Luke 22 again, verse 53. Jesus said, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. Now he's speaking to the Jews. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Not only is Judas an illustration of lost sinners, but he is specifically a picture of Israel rejecting their Messiah and consequently forfeiting the life of Christ for themselves. You see, when a person rejects Jesus, they reject life. They reject light. They reject grace. And all that's left is darkness. Sin and self. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 tell us that God had spoken to the nation of Israel by his prophets, but they did not heed his words. So what did God do? God quit speaking to them. And for 400 years there was not one word from God through his prophets. Until John the Baptist came. Making the way for the one who would come. Who would speak to Israel. Not just a prophet, though he was. But God's son. I will send my son. And so God spoke through the person of Christ. And they rejected him too. We must understand that the power of Satan, that the power Satan has is the power of darkness. It is at his disposal. This This is his task to keep people in darkness. So that they do not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ and be saved. This is what he desires. Listen to the scripture. Acts 26 verse 18. Paul on the Damascus road. Jesus said to him, I am sending you to open the eyes, the eyes of those in darkness so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Power of darkness. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the rulers. Against the authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we wrestle against as Christians. The darkness. And we are not of the dark. We are, of, we are of the light. Because we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom 
of light. Darkness is a spiritual weapon that Satan wields against people seeing the light of the gospel. Only God can open spiritually blind eyes of people imprisoned in that darkness. Colossians 1 verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, which is a kingdom of light. So what do we learn from Judas' betrayal? Well, there's a few things that we can learn as I wrap this up. Number one, we learn that Judas is the greatest example of lost opportunity and wasted privilege. I want you to think about the wasted privilege that people have here in this country Every single day because the gospel is preached over and over and over. And people waste the opportunity to hear it and believe it. Judas was with Jesus every day. He heard him teach. He saw his life. He he witnessed the miracles that he performed. He was with God in the flesh and yet unbelieving. Difficult to fathom. And yet it was true. He was, he bore the terrible burden of his own sin every day while refusing the easy yoke of freedom in Christ. <clears throat> he heard, he was there when Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it's easy. And you will have ease, you'll have rest for your souls. Judas was there. He heard those words and yet refused them. It's also true that Judas. Judas is a poignant illustration of the dangers of the love of money. He loved money. And he did what he did for money. The opportunities to pilfer the money bag were too overpowering for Judas. He wasn't a thief because he stole. Rather, he stole because he was a thief. Money meant more to him than the love of Christ, which is illustrated by his sellout of Christ for 30 pieces of silver, according to Matthew 26. Next, Judas was a, is a sobering picture of the vileness of spiritual betrayal. He not only, he is not only ones in the only ones in history that have turned on Christ. There have been many that have turned on Christ. And there is the ever that's why there is the ever present need of self examination. And finally, <clears throat> Judas was a living example of Jesus' love, patience, and kindness. 
Oh, the kindness and the love of Christ toward those that are lost. It's amazing that He allows people to even live and breathe air. We see Judas. We see in Judas that nothing sinful men can do will ever overturn the sovereign will of God. The cross, with all of its seeming tragedy, came with the triumph of redemption in the end. Satan thought he had achieved the victory when Jesus went to the cross. But actually, it was his ultimate defeat. Satan is defeated at the cross of Calvary. The victory belonged to Christ. Listen to the scripture. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. John writes in his first epistle, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. All of those works that Satan had had planned to defeat God, to overturn God's throne, now they are sealed in doom as Jesus went to the cross and came back victorious on the third day. I would ask you this morning, when you examine yourself, what do you see? Do you see one who is in love with Jesus Christ? Who would go, who would give, who would forsake anything for the love of Jesus? Or do you this morning not really care that much about Christ or a relationship with Him? Because if it did, it would mean that your life would be different. That you couldn't live the life you're living now. I've had people ask me, if I became a Christian, what, what would I have to change? I say, everything. Everything. You have to, you have to give up on yourself. You have to give up on your, your life. You have to give up on the, on the pleasures and, and pursuits that you are doing now. You have to give them up for Christ. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't have Him. But if you're willing to repent of your sins, if you're willing to turn from that life to Christ and believe in Him and follow Him and fall in love with Him, you'll have eternal life. And you'll be saved. You'll be saved from the One who would judge you in the end. So if you've never trusted Christ this morning, if you've never turned from your sin and repented of your, your sins, change your mind and turn to Christ today. Today is the day of salvation. Do it today. And for those of you who know Christ, just love Him more. Give Him everything. Don't hold back anything. Because He's worthy to have everything that you possess.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and for the, <clears throat> for the word that teaches us how you came <clears throat> and lived and died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. And you're there now. Your Holy Spirit is going throughout the world and he is calling people out of their sins, out of that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light in the forgiveness of sins in Christ. I pray that would be true for every person in this room. Lord, thank you for loving us in such a way. We are so undeserving. We could never deserve what you have given us. But that's grace. You've given us that which we did not deserve and do not deserve even till this day. So we, we thank you and we praise you and we love you as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Somebody have a bulletin for